Well, this morning is, is not part of any particular series. We're just doing a standalone talk this morning uh, about prayer. Um, January 6th, maybe early first week of January, is also about the time when we realize that all of our resolutions for the year may need to be adjusted, um, depending on what your resolutions are. Uh, you know, a lot of times, maybe the most popular ones are, you know, this year is the year that I'm going to eat better, or this year is the year that I'm going to start an exercise program, but enough about my resolutions. How about you? <laughs> just kidding. Um, I, I do think that many of us as followers of Jesus tend to also think towards our spiritual life and think towards our life with God and our walk of faith and say, well, you know what, maybe this year this is how I want to grow and this is where I want to, to go in the Lord. And I think that's a wonderful thing. Um, thanks to the generosity of uh, family, uh, a couple days ago, Holly and I were able to just take a couple days in town, get away, um, and, uh, and just pray a little bit and, and plan for the year and, and, um, and, and ask the Lord maybe, Lord, what, what, what are you leading, um, where are you, how are you leading us this year? And, and uh, sometimes, you know, we, we would even say, Lord, is there a particular word um, for my life this year? Is there a particular word that describes this season or this work that you're uh, wanting to do? And, and I don't know how you feel about making goals like that, or maybe, maybe they're not even goals, maybe just sort of having a vision like that or a target like that, because sometimes it can feel a little bit... Um, uh, a little bit limiting. And I know as Christians, we're always kind of torn between these two poles of being uh, legalistic or sort of being apathetic, you know. I, I read that someone on, on Facebook or Twitter said, you know what, it doesn't matter what your New, your New Year's resolutions are because God is faithful no matter what. Well, that's true. Um, but then you sort of get the impression that, well, should we not sort of do anything? I mean, what about Paul and Peter telling us to make every effort and to cooperate with the Holy Spirit? But we know our tendency. We know it's, it's, it's a short step from saying, all right, well, I will make every effort. It's a short step from that into this world of do-it-yourself, do-it-by-yourself sort of religion where you say, well, all right, well, then this is my goal for this year, and this is how I'm going to accomplish it, and I'm going to read my Bible this, man, this much a day, and I'm going to pray this much, and I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to. And maybe if we're honest within ourselves as human beings, we have kind of this tension between the optimism and then maybe a sort of pessimism. Maybe this optimism that makes us at the start of every new year, this is, okay, this is the year that I'm finally going to you know, get rid of this in my life or, or overcome this or get past this. Or this is, and there's this optimism that awakens in us, but then there's this other side of us that says, nah, it's not going to happen. I mean, I mean nothing's going to really change. I mean, I keep talking about praying more, but, but I don't know that anything's going to change, so, you know, who cares? And we, and we wonder, what do we do with this? One of the marvelous things about the gospel is the way that the gospel makes sense of who we are, even as human beings. It tells us that the reason we have these hopes that are larger than ourselves is because we're made in the image of God. And there's something in us that God said, look, I'm making you male and female in my image. There's something in us that says, yes, and so we want to aspire to this. And yet the gospel tells us that we're also humans with a sinful nature. That there's something in us that cripples us, that bends us in the wrong direction, that makes us stained, that sort of keeps us from that. And so then the question is, well, does the gospel tell us anything else? Or does it just explain our situation and then leave us there? No, of course it does a lot more than that. What it says for us is that Jesus has come to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. 
One of the most powerful story illustrations of this, I think of, is in the, one of the Chronicles of Narnia books, that, of the Voyage of the Dawn Treader, where Eustace is this kid that gets sort of dragged into Narnia, kicking and screaming. And it's interesting, I'm reading a book called The Narnia, and it's by Alan Jacobs, who used to be a professor at literature at Wheaton uh, College. And, and he's talking about how Eustace, in many ways, is how Lewis described himself. Lewis, in one of his, his letters or diary entries, writes about how when he became or sort of start to, started to acknowledge that God was God, and that's his phrase, the beginning of his faith awakening. Lewis describes himself as sort of coming to this realization, kicking and screaming. And then he writes to a friend about how pride is always on the surface for him. And he says, as soon as I have conquered other vices in my life, pride surfaces because I'm pleased that I've conquered other vices in my life. So even if you did meet your New Year's resolutions, you'd probably get proud, proud about it. And there is this, this feeling of I'm climbing and then I'm sinking and then I'm climbing and then I'm sinking. And what happens to Eustace in the story is he becomes a dragon. He sort of, sort of gets given over into the ugliness that's really in his own heart. This self-centered sort of being. And there's one point where he's tired of it and he rips the scales off of himself. And it's successful initially because he rips it and he rips it. And the, he's like, yes, look, it's gone. And then it grows right back. And then he says he needed Aslan to come. Aslan, of course, if you're familiar with the Narnia books, is the picture of Jesus. And it's not until Aslan the great lion comes and begins to rip it off himself. And Lewis says that the, the, the first claws of the lion upon his skin cut almost to the heart. A little hint maybe that real transformation happens from the inside out. A picture, of course, of the, how Jesus does for us what we could never do for ourselves. Jesus, the Bible tells us, is the faithful one whose righteousness we receive. But see, it's because we become children of God that all of a sudden now we can begin to become like God. In many ways, all of spiritual formation is about becoming who you already are in Christ. Becoming by the grace of God, by the Spirit of God, becoming what God has already called you in Christ. So then you say, okay, well, well then what, what about prayer and what about fasting and all of these things? Maybe some of you are used to them being called spiritual disciplines. Others of you, anything with the word discipline you're running from. So let's, let's use another phrase for it. The fathers, the church fathers called these practices, spiritual practices, formative practices. What's the role of spiritual practices like prayer, like fasting, like the, the 21 days that we've just set aside to start this year? What is the role of them? If we think that the role of spiritual practices is to impress God or to kind of rip the scales off ourselves, for ourselves, by ourselves, we're going to be disappointed. Many, many times we start out and we say, okay, this year I'm going to engage in prayer, or I'm going to fast, or I'm going to read my Bible, or I'm going to do this, because this is how I'm going to make myself a better person. And I just want to save you some disappointment right now and tell you, you can't do that. Only God can transform you. Only the Holy Spirit can make you like Christ. Okay, well then, so then do I slide into apathy and say, well then who needs spiritual practices? Go ahead, Lord. I can't whistle right now. There we go. <laughs> now, spiritual practices are not about coercing God or impressing God. They're about making room for God. 
They're about making room for God's work in your life. They don't impress God, they invite God. It's a little bit like, some of you do this as families, it's a little bit like having uh, family time. You know, maybe you set aside an evening or a, or a Saturday morning or whatever. This is our time when as a family we're not going to, you know, do any chores or anything like that. We're just going to, you know, maybe we're going to play games or we're going to do something together. This is family time. Now let me ask you something. Does family time make your kids your family? No. I mean, if some stranger showed up at your house and said, It's family time! (laughs) I'm here! I brought the board games! You're like, who are you? (laughs) Having family time doesn't make you part of the family. But having family time is what you do since you are part of the family. Does that make sense? Spiritual practices don't make you children of God. God's grace has done that. But spiritual practices are how we then begin to live as children of God. It's how we begin to say, you know what? I would like some family time with our Father in heaven. That's what the spiritual practices are for. Not to twist God's arms and say, God, will you please have me as your son? Will you please take me as your daughter? I'm praying really hard. God say, you could never do this on your own. Don't you see that in Christ, you are my dearly loved son. In Christ, you are my beloved daughter. In Christ, you are part of the family. Now let's have some family time. Does that make sense? So this morning, I want us to talk about prayer. Because prayer is very often the thing that we think of first when we say, all right, well, how about spiritual practices? And, and how about you know, making room from God, for God? What, 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 what do we do? I think there's several objections that come up when we think about prayer, and maybe the first objection is already rising to the surface in your heart, so let me just say it for you. Objection number one is, but I don't know how to pray. I don't know how to pray. I mean, I'd like to pray. I mean, it sounds nice. I know that Christians are supposed to pray, but I don't know how to pray or what to pray about. I mean, how many of you have tried this? You know, you, you, you've made a goal for the year, you know, in years past. I want to pray more. And you get up in the morning, you got your coffee made, and you're sitting in, the, in your chair, and you, you've got it all ready, you know. And you sit down and you say, all right, dear God, um, oh, I need to send that email. Oh, I wonder what people are saying on Facebook. Sorry, is, are these just my problems? <laughs> yes, Tim says. <laughs> Most of us would say, well, before we can even start this, how do you, what do, I don't even know what to pray about. It's interesting, in Luke chapter 11, Luke tells us the story of the disciples asking Jesus the same thing. Luke 11, verse 1. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And Jesus said to them, it's simple, first talking to God, just pray whatever's in your heart. Uh-oh, that's not what he said, is it? And Jesus said to them, when you pray, say. Now this is an odd place to stop in a text, but this is exactly where we're going to stop. And Jesus said, when you pray, say. Now, I'm not sure how you learned to pray, but I grew up in kind of a non-denominational church. and So when someone came to faith and they said, well, what's prayer? And I don't know what to pray about. And how should I pray? People told me, and then I went on to pass on the same sage wisdom to others. I just said, well, prayer is just talking to God. Just pray whatever's in your heart. 
And that sounds like lovely advice until you realize that selfishness is our native language. And that after enough years of telling people to pray what's in their heart, they begin to ask for crazy things. It was a couple decades later when I was at a chapel service in our Christian college, which at that time was going through a bit of a rough patch in who they invited for chapel speakers. And this particular person came into chapel, and he had the whole student body stand up and say with arm motions, Money cometh to me now. I'm not kidding. You could probably catch him on late night Christian television, sadly. Reach up to heaven, pull down an imaginary lever, and say, money cometh to me now. No lie. This is what he had the whole student body doing. And probably a third of the students did it with sincerity. Another third did it to mock, because they're college students. And then there was another third that was just in shocked, dumbfounded silence. That was the year that I was on staff at the university. And being a good, you know, staff person, we were all sitting on chairs on the stage. I have a bit of a rebellious streak in me, and I remained seated. While everyone was standing and told to do this thing, I stayed, stayed sitting. It was my Rosa Parks moment, you know. <laughs> I will not do this. And, um, and then later they said, okay, well, Glenn, you're the piano player. Would you go and play while he leads everyone in this corporate prayer? So I will not do that. I walked over to the piano, and I sat down at the bench, and I did not play. Shortly after that, I decided it was time to leave. You see, when we tell people to pray what's in their hearts, we start a very, very dangerous journey. Because Jesus never said that. Lord, teach us how to pray. Teach you? You don't need anyone to teach you. Just pray. No. I suspect that Jesus knows something that we're a bit reluctant to admit, and that is prayer is a learned language. Prayer is a learned language. And maybe this is good news for some of you, because you're saying, well, I don't know what to pray about. Well, look, this is good news. None of us truly know what to pray about. Prayer is a learned language. Our native tongue is selfishness. Prayer is a learned language. Eugene Peterson wrote a thin little book called Answering God. And he talks about how praying the Psalms are kind of like language school for us. How the Psalms even are structured in a way that teaches how to answer God. The first five books of the Bible are called the Torah. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, you write the Torah... Traditionally, in Hebrew thought, the Torah is God's word to us, God speaking to us. Now, the book of Psalms happens to be organized in five books. Could it be that it's organized in five books because it's, it's training in how we answer God? Now, if you think about this, this is not so strange because all of us learn to speak by being spoken to. None of us, we don't say to our toddlers or babies, we don't say, well, just say whatever's in your heart. No, we say, ball. And they say, whoa, good. You're getting it. Ball. Listen, as a six-month-old or a nine-month-old or whatever it is, when a baby can only make little ooey-gooey baby sounds and say, parents think that's awesome. But as a six-year-old, or a nine-year-old, so 
Good morning, Sophia. No, it's time to learn some words, honey. There's this story in the Gospels where Jesus you know, compares this elaborate prayer of the Pharisees, and then there's the man who beats his chest, and he says, have mercy on me, you God, a sinner. This prayer later becomes called the Jesus Prayer, and it actually is in the Franny and Zoe book that is the, the reading for Epiphany. And there is something about the simplicity of a raw, God have mercy on me, a sinner, prayer. There absolutely is. But I suspect that if we want to have a relationship with our Heavenly Father, we're going to learn, need to learn our Father's language. Just as with our kids, we can ooh and ah for a year. But then it's time to learn some words. And you learn by imitating. Now here's what's interesting, because any of you who are artists, you know this already. But it's the rest of us who are sort of pseudo-artists or wannabe artists that sort of imagine that really artistic people never have to imitate anything or anybody. And all the musicians or painters or artists in the room laugh. Because everybody who has learned an instrument or a language or to paint, what's the very first thing you did? You imitated. You painted somebody else's works. A couple of weeks ago or maybe a week and a half ago, Holly and I took our girls up to the Van Gogh exhibit up at the Denver Museum. If you haven't seen it, it's wonderful. Becoming Van Gogh. I didn't know much about how he became Van Gogh. But there's a, there's a fascinating and troubling and all of this stuff you know, that weaves into a story of an artist. But one of the things that was amazing to me is how much his style changed based on where he was. At first he was drawing these kinds of you know, pencil and chalk and then he moves to Paris and he you know, sees the school of the Impressionists and he's thinking, this is bad painting. You know? Impressionist, this, is, this doesn't even look like a flower or, you know, and then all of a sudden he learns it and he learns pointillism and how to sort of paint with small strokes and these different, and, and you see Van Gogh all of a sudden taking a little from here and taking a little from here. And, to, and it's not until you learn to imitate that you are actually allowed to create. That imitation actually comes before creation. Creating. That the creative impulse in us to say, well, I just want to make up my own words. I think we need to know that every creative act must first be preceded by an act of imitation. Creativity is only, follow, is only follows non-creativity. This is interesting, isn't it? And, and to get sort of philosophical with you on creativity, only God creates out of nothing. Ex nihilo. The rest of us create with existing things, so we have to imitate. Well, I'm going to learn this, and then I'll learn this. I mean, here's Jared Anderson in the back. Jared didn't start learning piano by just sort of sitting down and making up his own chords. Probably learned by imitating Bach and Mozart and all these other pieces, am I right? And then he says, hey, you know what? This progression could be a worship song. And, you know, at six years old, wrote his first hit. No, I, I don't know. <laughs> but this is, this is the thing about it. All right. So if imitation leads to creativity, what do we do to learn to pray? We learn the Psalms. Listen to what the church has said throughout the centuries. Just a few quotes for you about Psalm praying. Athanasius in the 4th century is one of the bishops. He said, He who recites the Psalms is uttering the rest as his own words. In other words, you begin to pray someone else's words as if they were your words. And each sings them as if they were written concerning him. And he accepts them and recites them not as if another were speaking, nor as if speaking about someone else, but he handles them as if he were speaking about himself. 
one of the things to maybe throw out there as a possible spiritual practice for you this year is to say, what if you took one psalm a day and you began to pray and say, God, help me to pray these words as if they were actually my own words to speak back the words that have been spoken to me and in doing so learn this language. Now, maybe some of you are thinking, well, that's cute, Glenn. That's nice for you pastors. I suppose you have nothing to do but hang out in coffee shops and read the psalms. <laughs> Not that I've ever heard that before. <laughs> Here's a quote from Jerome, another church leader in the 5th century. He says, Farmers are to pray the psalms while they, while they plow the fields and workmen as they work in their shops. Could you imagine? Plowing the fields. I don't know if any of you do that. But as you work in your shops, your cubicles, I think that would be an amazing challenge. But the point is, this isn't the work of professional Christians. This is the work of the every man and every woman. Luther, fast forward, maybe some of you are saying, and you don't want to really say it because you don't want to sound, you know, whatever, prejudiced, whatever, but some of you are maybe saying, Glenn, all of this praying someone else's words, I mean, I mean come on, that's a little bit, and you don't want to say it, but you're thinking it, so I'll say it for you. It sounds a little bit Catholic. Like, I'm not, I mean, we're Protestants, man. We don't, we don't pray someone else's words. Here's Martin Luther, the great Protestant reformer. In the 16th century. First, when I feel that I have, bec- when I have become cool and joyless in prayer because of other tasks or thoughts, for the flesh and the devil always <laughs> impede and obstruct prayer, what does Martin Luther do when he feels cool and joyless in prayer? I take my Psalter, psalm book, hurry to my room, and as time permits, I say quietly to myself and word for word the Lord's Prayer, the Ten Commandments, the Apostles' Creed, and some psalms. What's the medicine for a joyless prayer life? Is it to kind of get yourself more excited? Sorry. Oh my gosh. Is it to just jump a little more? Or is it to say, I need to return to the Word of God? Bonhoeffer in the 20th century. If evangelicals had saints, surely Dietrich would be one of them. This is what he says, What matters is not what we feel like praying about, uh oh, but what God wants us to ask Him for. Not the poverty of our own heart, but the riches of the Word of God must decide how we pray. Isn't that beautiful? In other words, if, if we were to tell Bonhoeffer, well, we just tell people to pray what's in their heart, he would say, why should the poverty of your heart Decide what you pray about when you have the riches of the Word of God. That's amazing. Now this could, this could be a challenge to you of saying, okay, well, gosh, all right, I guess I need to do that. Or it could actually be very encouraging because you'd say, well, this is good news. It turns out nobody knows how to pray. It turns out we all need the Psalms and the Scriptures and the Lord's Prayer. Yes. And the sooner we go through that language school the sooner we'll be able to pray our own prayer. It's not that you never get to the place of praying. Of course you can pray your own prayers. But it's just like a language. Once you gain fluency in a language, you'll then be able to construct your own sentences. But first, you're going to hear someone else's sentences. And you're going to learn how to turn your heart towards God. The second objection to prayer or prayer life is maybe something like this. But God doesn't really care, does He? Or He's too far away. I mean, this is a nice idea to say we've got to pray and learn this language, but, but, but after all, isn't he way up there in heaven? 
Jesus, when he gave them his prayer, and he says, look to, to the disciples, he says, pray this way. Interestingly enough, Jesus himself based his, what we call the Lord's Prayer, based on an old Jewish prayer. Did you know that? In fact, there's a good case to be made, just as an aside, that Jesus learned to pray by praying the Psalms as a good Jewish boy. Which is why in the moment of his utter anguish and agony, what comes out of Jesus is not an extemporaneous, spontaneous prayer, but the words of Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus, in his moment of death, prays someone else's words. Think about that. Now, Jesus, there's this old Jewish prayer that, that predates the time of Christ. It's called the Kaddish, and it goes like this. Exalted and hallowed be his great name in the world, which he created according to his will. May he establish his kingdom in your lifetime and in your days and in the lifetime of the whole household of Israel speedily and at a near time. And when Jesus begins to give his prayer in Matthew 6 verse 9, he says, pray then like this, our father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Right away we're saying, hey, Jesus is using a bit of this old Jewish prayer, but he's given a different spin on it, hasn't he? And many, many commentators have, have pointed out that one of the things that's different right away about Jesus' prayer is what? Our Father. And many people have pointed out this is Jesus using the word Abba. And isn't this significant because there are not a lot of prayers. At one point, some commentators a few decades ago said, no prayer ever used the word Abba. That's actually not right. There have been... Other documents that we've discovered, the Dead Sea Scrolls and others, intertestamental documents, just as an aside, that Jesus was not the first to pray to God as Father. But nevertheless, there is something very intimate about what Jesus is doing. He's saying, when you pray, begin your address by calling him Father, Abba, our Father. A word that whatever you say about this word, there's no way you can run away from the fact that it it carries with it a deep sense of intimacy and and closeness. Jesus is saying, when you begin to pray, call God our Father. Father. In heaven. Prayer is a learned language, yes, but prayer is also a personal encounter. Prayer is a personal encounter. It's not just a a set of words that we rehearse. And maybe some of us, rightfully so, have baggage with praying a a set prayer or a written prayer. We have baggage with it because we've been around too many people who pray it as if they're not even talking to a person. And they just say the words. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be... Right? We've all been there. Or a lot of us have been there. And so maybe this the the struggle with saying prayers are learned languages because we've felt people who've forgotten that prayer is also personal. A personal encounter with a Father who cares. With a Father who's near. So how can He be near? Aren't we saying our Father in heaven? Isn't that like to the man upstairs? To whom it may concern. (laughs) The Jewish idea of heaven is not a faraway place, but a separate space. The Jewish idea of heaven is not a faraway place, but a separate space. In other words, in, in, in all of the thought, in, in, in the Old Testament you see this as well, that heaven overlaps earth. 
And there are moments where heaven actually intersects earth. The, the, the place where Jacob had his stairway to heaven dream in Genesis, that's one of those interlocking places. The temple in Jewish tradition became one of those places where heaven and earth collide. Jesus called himself the new temple. Jesus becomes the place where heaven and earth come together. And then Jesus said, if you're in me, you are all together, collectively plural, the new temple, which means every time we gather, we become the place where heaven and earth collide. Our Father in heaven is not God way up there. Our Father in heaven is God who is here even now. When you pray, it's a personal encounter. It's not to a God who's in a faraway place, a clockmaker who started it all and then went on a journey. You're talking to the God who is right here. Right here. A personal encounter. Maybe... The idea of father is, is difficult for a lot of us because of home life or growing up, or father, mother, all of it. Just, there's plenty of dysfunction to go along with that. And I know that, that it is only the Spirit of God who can kind of rehabilitate that image or that picture for us. My hope is that maybe through experiences or encounters or even stories of other families who also have imperfect parents and yet parents who have always tried to show love, that maybe it can repair this image of what earthly fathers are trying to approximate, what earthly fathers are trying in a broken way to sort of resemble. I've heard it said that love always flows down, which means that children will never know how much parents love them. I'll tell you, there's, <laughs> there's no feeling like standing in the hospital room when we had our first child, when we had Sophia, and standing there and seeing her laying in that little, you know, plastic shield thing, sneeze guards or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> and my parents had just flown in from Malaysia. In fact... They arrived at the airport while we were already in labor, and Jared, it's interesting that you're here today, Jared was the one who picked him up from the airport and brought him to the hospital, and, um, and there are no words to describe the moment of standing there looking at this baby who now made me a father with my father next to me. And I just stood there and wept, because it's true, you realize in the moment it's true. A child will never know how much a parent loves him, because love flows I told you the story a few months ago when we were just kind of really swimming over our heads and struggling with, um, Holly was struggling with some, some challenges and emotionally in life and, and called my dad and, and said, that, hey, we're really going through a kind of a tough stretch. And without hesitation, he says, do you want me to come? He lives around the world. <laughs> Like about as far as you can go before you start coming back. <laughs> and yet his first words were, do you want me to come? I'll be there. He calls me back from the few hours and says, the flight's booked. I'll be there in a couple of weeks. How much more is our Father in Heaven right here? Right here. What do you need? Do you need me? I'm here. 
if even halfway across the world can feel not that far because of the love of an earthly father, how much more is our heavenly father who is right here waiting for us to ask? Thirdly, maybe the last and final objection to prayer is, okay, sure, sure, sure. But what does prayer do? I mean, what does it do? It doesn't work, does it? Well, prayer is not magic. That's true. Prayer is not an incantation that twists God's arm. That's true. But prayer is a powerful invitation. Listen to this. Matthew 6, verse 10. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Prayer is a powerful invitation. Sometimes we take these words that say, your kingdom come, your will be done... And in our minds, what we really hear or what we're really saying, think we're saying is, fine God, you're going to do whatever you want to do anyway, so do it. Don't know why you need my permission. Your will be done. And it turns into sort of Christian fatalism. God's not interested in us becoming theistic fatalists. When Jesus says, pray... Even as the old Jewish prayer, the Kaddish says to pray, may you see His kingdom come speedily in your life. God from the beginning has been wanting us to say, God, here is a piece of brokenness that I would like your saving and restoring rule to come into. Here is a piece of My life, here is a piece of the world that has been ripped apart, fractured by sin, that I would like your saving, restoring rule to put back together. When you pray, your kingdom come, your will be done, you're not saying, fine God, do whatever you want. What you are saying is, God, here's a patch of the world. Here's a piece of my life. Here's a piece of my heart that I would love for you to bring your saving and healing and restoring rule into. Do you have anything like that? Is there anything that we could possibly say, uh, uh, yes God, in my friendships, I need your saving and restoring rule to come to bear on this situation. God, in this sickness, God, in this difficulty, I need your saving and restoring rule to come to bear on this patch of brokenness. Your kingdom come, your will be done is a powerful invitation to the God who saves, to the God who heals, to the God who takes broken things and puts them back together, to the God who's already begun to make all things new, to the God who raised Jesus Christ from the dead as a promise to us in advance of what all of us will experience who are in Christ. That God wants to bring it forward in your life even now. See, I think this is where we get squirrely about miracles because we tend to think of miracles like magic. Well, maybe if I say these words with this much faith and this much money given in the bucket, then I can make this happen. But that's not it. Every miracle Jesus did was a sign that the kingdom was already arriving. Every miracle Jesus did was an announcement to the world that look, one day there will be no sickness, one day there will be no death, one day every tear will be wiped away, but in advance of that, I'm going to pull a taste of that forward into the present and let this blind man see right now. So miracles are not 
the guarantees of Christians. Miracles are the foretaste of the kingdom that is ours in Christ. Miracles are not guarantees of, the, of Christians. They're foretastes of the kingdom that is already coming. And that's why we pray, Lord, would you let your reign and your rule break into this situation now? What a wonderful prayer. What a wonderful thing to say, God, you're the king. Your end goal is salvation and restoration. Would you begin to do it now? I wonder what it'd be like if all of us began to really believe that we're not alone in this world. I wonder what it'd be like if we really began to believe the words of Jesus who says, I'm not leaving you as orphans. I'm giving you my Holy Spirit. One of the gifts of the Pentecostal and Charismatic movement to the Western church, one of the gifts of it was it taught us to believe again that God cares and God is near. And that God breathes the breath of His Spirit into broken situations. And He does heal and He does restore, and He does make His rule come to bear on different parts of our brokenness. What if we really could believe that? The other day, Holly and I were talking about how difficult it really is to ask for help. Even to ask God for help. Because some of us, again, have believed a twisted version of Christianity that says... God wants you to do this all on your own and by yourself. Go ahead. Rip off the scales. I'm watching. Instead of realizing that the cross says to us, I know you can't do this. And would you just invite me in? Because I can and I will. I can and I will. Every parent in the room knows the great dismay that you feel when a child insists on trying to do things on their own when they could have just easily asked for your help. And they climbed up on the counter to get the peanut butter thing and they ended up falling and bumping their head and broke a plate, you know, not that that's ever happened in our house. And you come and you're like, I'm not mad about the plate, but just ask me for help. I'm right here. I wonder how much our Father in Heaven is saying, don't you see that if, I, if God who did not spare His own Son, Paul says in Romans, if the God who did not spare His own Son, how much more will He give you everything you need? Would you ask our Father in Heaven who is right here? Let's pray this morning. The reason we end every sermon with a time of confession is not because we want to beat ourselves up. The reason we do it is because confession is the most beautiful way of admitting that we need help. Confession is when we say, yeah, God, I, I, I tried to climb up on the counter and I busted some plates and bumped my head. I'm sorry. Now I need your help. So would you this morning just take a minute and quietly, right where you are, begin to say, God, forgive me for trying this on my own. Forgive me for believing that I'm on my own. Forgive me for thinking that I'm abandoned, that I'm an orphan, that I don't have a Father in Heaven, that, that if there is a God, He's far away. Forgive me for, for, for not realizing that you're right here.